over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We're your hosts and fashion historians, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. We're going to talk about something very cool and also very timely today, a very hot topic. We're going to talk about how people's perception of the ideal body type shifts over time. And to do so, we're going to have a conversation with the very amazing and very smart Emma McClendon, who is the curator of a current exhibition on this very subject. But before we get to that, we're going to share a little poem that provides some insight into the extreme measures women have historically taken to craft and mold their physical forms into the shape considered the most desired during their own era. Yes, ladies. Struggles with body image are nothing new. (laughs) No, they are not. And in fact, April, this poem was first published in the London Magazine in 1777 and directed towards prospective husbands. Just as a frame of reference, this is the height of popularity of Marie Antoinette and her English counterpart, Georgiana, Duchess of Devonshire. I'm sure many of our listeners have either read or seen one of the many books or movies about these women who are considered fashion icons of the 18th century. There's so many books and so many movies. We can't even list them all here. (laughs) No, we cannot. Uh, And I do want you all to know, our listeners, that this poem is from nearly 250 years ago. So the language is, is a little bit stilted to us now, but this is how it reads. It says, Let her gown be tucked up to the hips on each side, shoes too high for to walk or to jump. And to deck the sweet creature complete for a bride, let the court cut her, cut her a rump. Thus finished in taste, while on Chloe you gaze, you may take dear charmer for life, but never undress her, for out of her stays, you'll find you have lost half of your wife. (laughs) And this little ditty may seem a little bit bizarre to us now, but at the time of its publication, it would have been immediately received as a hilarious commentary on popular fashion. This was arguably the apex of the artifice of fashion, And at the upper echelons of 18th century fashion, everything was exaggerated to the ultimate extreme. Hairstyles could reach the height of three or four feet. Women's waists were tightly cinched by corsets or stays, as the poem references. And this tiny waist was only further emphasized by skirts, which were supported by wild understructures. The supremely wide hip skirts that our popular imagination readily identifies with Marie Antoinette were supported by hoops, usually made of cane, that were known as panniers. Slightly less formal, however, would have been the style that the poem teases, a cork rump. (laughs) And yes, it's exactly what you think it is. Some women actually strapped giant pieces of cork around their waist to support the desired poof at the rear of the skirt. Today, we are happy to welcome the aforementioned Emma McClendon to the show. She is the Associate Curator of Costume at the Museum at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. Her exhibition, The Body, Fashion, and Physique, is the fire that sparked this week's episode. And for those of you that are able to visit, this show is open until May 5th, 2018. So run! Don't walk! You have just enough time to catch this really, really fascinating exhibition. So, Emma, I want to thank you so much for joining us today on Dressed. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah. So, um, I actually haven't told you this yet, but this exhibition opened at the tail end of my fall 2017 semester at FIT. And this is the exact moment when I was wrapping up one of my fashion history classes, 
And I brought my students to see the exhibit right before their final exam. And at that time, I also gave them an option to write an extra credit review of your show. This was entirely optional. And I think it's really important to tell you that your show kind of rocked some of their world. <laughs> um, some of them wrote really poignantly about your exhibition and, and said that it changed the way they view the relationship of clothing to the body. So I wanted you to know that. That's amazing. I mean, I'm so flattered or glad that it could have that impact. You know, with putting the show together, I wondered sort of how much people would be able to take away from it because it's so much more than a history of silhouettes. There's so much more supplemental kind of information and things to get out of it. So I'm I'm so happy to hear that your students could get in there and understand some of the really complex stuff going on. Yeah, and I I think the majority of them are design students, so I think there's a takeaway um, that they're all going to have a little bit of a lasting effect of, like, that's going to carry over into their own work. And that's, I think, one of the key goals, I think, that I had was that because it's at the Fashion Institute of Technology, because the museum is there sort of first and foremost for the college, that I wanted to hopefully touch some of this latest group of professionals entering the industries to maybe help them rethink or kind of challenge them to address some of these issues in their work when they get out into the field. Yeah. So um, before we go any further, let's I'm going to tell our listeners a little bit um, more details about the exhibition. Um, basically, Emma has curated um, a selection of more than 60 objects from the museum at FIT's permanent collection, and they range in date from the 18th century up until today. And your exhibition demonstrates that our perceptions of the human body are mutable. Um, not only changing, but also manipulated throughout time by forces of fashion and technology and capitalism, even, one could argue. You know, we're all born with what we got, and somehow the majority of us have been indoctrinated with this idea that what we have is not enough. So can you tell us, what exactly are we talking about when we use this term, the ideal body? So for the show, I really concentrated on representations of an ideal body in the fashion press or the fashion industry, because I think there's a lot of different ways we can talk about an ideal body. I think there's a broader kind of cultural ideals of beauty that is definitely related to what's going on in fashion, but it's not always the same thing. So for the show, I really wanted to hone in on how the fashion industry itself is both physically treating the body in terms of the clothes that it's producing, but also how it's affecting broader understandings of what constitutes a fashionable body in the imagery that it produces, in even the language that it uses to talk about the body. You know, so much of the rhetoric is about us needing to attain or maintain our bodies in some way that implies our bodies are inherently wrong and our bodies inherently need to be changed in order to be fashionable, whether the ideal is incredibly long and lean and boyish or more voluptuous or more athletic, you know, whatever it might be, it it seems to change and the message seems to be that we need to change ourselves. Right. Which brings us to 
a point that I, I want to bring up a quote that you actually use in the show. Um, and this is a quote from Vogue. Um, and the quote is from 1950, Vogue. And it says, we tend in these times in this country to think a beautiful body only in terms of a perfect figure. A figure is considered good or bad as related to clothing generally and current fashions specifically. So what do you think the relationship is? You know, you talked about a lot of different body types that have been considered fashionable throughout history. But what do you think the relationship of that ideal body to the clothes is? It's a great question. I mean, that quote I I put into the literature with the show because— it struck me that it could be someone talking today. Yes. You know, it's 1950, but this is still the way we think about bodies often. You know, clothing is so connected to our sense of selves and our identity. And so we want to fit our bodies. We want to attain a certain way of presenting our bodies that we see out there in the world, out there in the press. And oftentimes the clothes, the particular silhouette, the particular way it's designed will often be to highlight a particular type of body, whatever given period that might be. And so even though we can look at a broad swath of fashion history and understand that the ideal fashion physique is a cultural construct, that it changes over time, In any given particular moment, it doesn't feel so fluid. It doesn't feel so changeable. It feels like a fixed expectation that we have to adhere to, that we're expected to work to attain. And so that quote just struck me so much because it kind of highlights this inherent kind of conflict, I think, Mm -hmm. between clothes and the body. Yes. That on the one hand, you know, clothes and fashion is inherently changing. It's inherently fluid. And with each kind of wave or flow of trend, a different part of the body is being highlighted. And that can often usher in a different physique, you know, slight changes or, you know, more major changes in the physique that's promoted, but that it's not always so easy or never easy to change your body to fit into this new silhouette of clothing. And and it's been, you know, the rhetoric going on around this hasn't changed in over 50 years, you know, over 100 years, arguably. And so I I hope that that's kind of a takeaway for people coming to the show. Right. So... We're going to take a break here for a word from our sponsor. But when we come back, I'm going to pose this question to you. Um, I'm going to ask you who gets to decide what (laughs) is and is not ideal. Welcome back. And as I said, I'm going to restate the question that I proposed to you um, before the break. And that is, who exactly is it that's deciding what these ideals for the body should be? It's such a complicated question. I think it gets to really the crux of just fashion history in general. You know, I think if one of us were able to tell who determines what's fashionable, we just (laughs) never have to work again. We'd be just billionaires. Exactly. But the short answer is equally complex. It's so many people that decide this. And I think that that's what makes it so complicated in conversations that are going on today about how to maybe fix it, 
is because everybody kind of plays a bit of a blame game. You know, arguably what we see in the pages of fashion magazines is hugely influential. What we're seeing in the media, photography, advertisements, marketing, this imagery, this kind of bombardment of the visual across media, you know, is is crucial. But at the same time, you know, designers are creating garments, physically creating the garments in set standardized sizes based on a sample system. Now, some of them argue that the sample system has to be this way because this is how it works with the magazines, this is how it works with the runway, this is how it works with retail. But then also, they aren't taking necessarily an active role in whether they could change that or not. At the same time, you know, retailers have a hand in this too. How, what sizes they buy. Mm -hmm what sizes they stock in store, where they merchandise things, that drastically affects, you know, if you, whether or not you see someone on pages of Vogue or not, if you can't walk into a store and find your size, if a brand is not going to offer sizes past a certain number, then you're immediately going to feel excluded. Right. You know, the whole industry... Marginalizing certain body types. Absolutely. The whole industry, I think, needs to take responsibility for the fact that it's a systematic marginalization at every single level. Right. Right. And historically, I guess we could argue that it really, first and foremost, it starts with the image makers, Mm -hmm. right? Whoever it is that are creating these fashionable images. Um, Now, of course, as photographers, but dating back in the 17th and 18th century, Mm -hmm. we're talking about painters who were establishing what the ideal body was at that time. Right, absolutely. And also, I mean, I would argue, too, that museums play a role here as well. You know, we can't disclude museums from talking about when when discussing who shapes what we view as being fashionable, you know, we can't call out retail displays for using certain size mannequins and not showing other sizes and then give all museums a pass for the fact that, you know, most all museums showing fashion use the same size as retail mannequins, right. display fashion in the same way. You know, we have to think about how we're displaying fashion history, you know, and how that's shaping our understanding of the present. You know, it will, it perpetuates misconceptions that all women in the past were thinner than we are today, that all women in the past were one size. You know, if we, a hundred years from now, if curators reconstructed the fashions of today and based it solely on what they saw in Vogue and the, you know, sample size that are collected by museums, everybody would think that we were all size two, four, zero, yeah. what have you. You know, it's every level of image maker, of, you know, history purveyor. And and it goes to, you know, the media, too. So this is to your point about technology and how it shapes what we consider fashionable or not consider fashionable. Going back to the 19th and early 20th century, of course, this is when you have the early establishment of the fashion press as we understand it today. And so that established a very clear and linear and hierarchical way of disseminating fashion imagery where you were either in that hierarchy and in that institution and visible or you weren't. And now, of course, with the changes in communication, the changes in technology, the opening up of the industry on social media, we're seeing that begin to shift. Right. 
and people who are typically excluded from those normative fashion institutions are able to have a voice, are able to be visible. Right, right. Regaining control over over, over what ultimately in the fashion press, like you said, starting in the 19th century, has has been distortion. Mm. Um, Mm -hmm. Especially before photography, a lot of the fashion illustrations are are wildly distorted. Yeah. Um, the proportions of the figures are impossible. Yeah. Um, like, I think you and I have both laughed a few times about some of these fashion illustrations where somebody's waist is, like, the exact same width as their head. Or smaller. I mean, they're so distorted. We have some on view in the exhibition, and it juxtaposed with garments that, you know, are virtually the same as the ones depicted in the fashion plate or illustration. So you can see how the designers use certain elements of construction, placing the waistline in a certain way, making the skirt fuller, making sleeves fuller, cutting the neckline in a certain way that'll draw the eye to areas of the body, emphasize certain proportions, create a silhouette. Right. But then in the fashion plate, you see how that proportion of silhouette is translated into completely unnatural body ideals. As you say, the waists are smaller than the heads, the feet are minuscule, the shoulders are impossibly broad. It's just, and and we can understand that really easily when looking at these historical fashion illustrations because they're illustrations. You know, they're done by hand. We understand that there's an artist. It's so much harder for us to understand that now when looking at fashion imagery today because it's photographs. But the same manipulation is happening. The same distortion is happening. It's just digitally manipulated in Uh, Photoshop and other software. And we have a video on view in the show that shows how extreme that kind of digital manipulation can get. It was disturbing, actually. But what was amazing to me about that video when I first saw it is that it's so disturbing to watch it happen. And you understand exactly not only what they're doing, but why they're doing it. You know, you see them elongate her legs, shave down her thighs, shave down her stomach, make her eyes bare. You know, she Mm -hmm. becomes like a Disney princess. Right. And But the end result is the type of image where if you didn't see the before and after and you didn't watch it happen, all of us just see images like that Thousands of times, hundreds of thousands of times a day, we're bombarded with that. Especially in beauty imagery. Absolutely. You know, and it's interesting to see there has obviously been a lot more conversation about that recently. I think it was Walgreens or one of them who said that they were no longer going to do this extreme retouching in their beauty imagery. And, And I think that that's important. It's great to see that there's, you know, more prominent retailers who are talking about that. But at the same time, the selection of who's in those images in the first place still doesn't mean that by not retouching them, you're going to have greater inclusivity and visibility for, quote unquote, real people. Right. Um, I've even started to see some of the beauty ads, like with language at the bottom, indicating this ad has been retouched, Mm. um, which is also something interesting to see happen, too. I want to go back because we were talking about 19th century yeah. uh, magazines. I'm going to go back just a little bit further and kind of get 
touch back in on that, um, on, on, well, we can talk about beauty, actually. Um, because during the 20th century, lots of women's fashion magazines and beauty manuals, mm. all these beauty manuals, um, they actually published charts mm. in them, which were supposed to provide women with specific guidelines in terms of how to achieve the perfect measurements and the weight for their height. And and um, some of these are kind of crazy. For instance, um, in 1938, the French fashion magazine Marie Claire says that the ideal measurements for a woman who is five foot three should be a 33 and a half inch bust, a 23 and a half inch waist, and 33 and a half inch hips. And I think the vast majority of women simply do not conform to these proportions. If you can see Emma in the studio right now, she's like vigorously shaking her head no. Um, And if you look at the weight charts over a 10-year period in the 1930s, we also see this really drastic change in the recommended weight for this same five foot three woman. In 1929, the charts recommend that this woman should weigh 132 pounds. And then by the time you get to 1939, 113 pounds. So this is almost 20 pounds difference. So can you speak a little about these really impossible body standards and some of your favorite garments that are in the show that are meant to play a role in kind of aiding the creation of a desired silhouette? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that beauty guides and this kind of dressing for your figure and all these aspects that are in fashion magazines that talk about bodies that are poised in the publications as being helpful, right? You know, that's always the rhetoric surrounding them is they're written as a best friend who's giving you good advice and telling you kind of how you should eat or exercise or dress you. Exactly. And (laughs) we really need to, I think, kind of strip that away because the reality is that this is all just telling you that you're not good enough as you are. And the statistics that you just mentioned show how mutable it is. It's completely fabricated, all of this, no pun intended. (laughs) But I think what gets talked about the most when thinking about physical garments and their relationship to this kind of process of maintaining a physique is undergarments, right? You know, undergarments for so much of fashion history played such a significant role, you know, in much the same way that certain accessories like gloves and hats and things, you know, used to be a necessity when you left the house. So did incredible layers of undergarments. You know, you couldn't leave the house. You weren't appropriately dressed until you had your corset and or, you know, your girdle, you know, There was an obsession, and still is to a certain extent, but in different ways. But there was an obsession with containing the female form. Right. Like, no jiggliness, no fleshiness. You know, these were horrifying. So, to a certain extent, you know, things like corsets and girdles, you know, they were there to shape your body. They were there to contain your body. But it wasn't just about making you look thinner. It also was very closely linked to, you know, propriety and modesty and things like that, which we'll talk about a bit later, I think. But to your point about kind of how this would play a role in shaping your body, I mean, one of the freakiest pieces on view in the show that's one of my favorites is this rubber girdle from 1930. And these were very popular at the time. It's entirely made out of rubber. It's slightly perforated, so it's got like little pinprick holes in them to make it 
quote unquote breathable, you know, but I don't know anyone who would really want to go and put, although I say that, but there's waist trainers and things like that out there now that aren't far from this. But the idea behind these rubber girdles was not just that you would wear it to compress and kind of smooth and make yourself appear thinner. They were also advertised as a way to literally massage your fat away and to make you thinner. And we have an advertisement on display with the girdle and all of the copy in it is about how you'll lose this many inches in this many weeks. You know, it's Probably so... Probably because you're sweating to death yeah. in your rubber girdle. <laughs> but it's just, it's so similar to the way people talk about this stuff now, whether you're talking about waist trainers and how it's going to make you look so different so quickly. You're going to lose inches and minutes. It's the same thing with extreme dieting, with all of this stuff. Again, that's bombarding us all the time. And, it, and the idea is, again, that you need to change your body and And in this case, in this rather extreme case, the clothing can help you change your body. Right. After another word from our sponsor, we're going to come back and discuss another exceptional garment that's in the exhibition that some people have found to be a little bit shocking (laughs) and maybe a little bit scary. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. So 
one of the corsets in this exhibition, there's several. How many corsets are in the exhibition? Oh, God. I should, probably should know that, but I don't <laughs> know that off the top of my head. There's many. You many, we'll say that. Many, many. <laughs> um, and I think one of the things, one of the reasons that there's so many is um, because actually corsets can be shaped different ways mm, to create mm-hmm. different sh- silhouettes. So you actually kind of see a history of corsetry in the mm, exhibition mm-hmm. itself. Um, but one of them was particularly shocking to my students. It's this 19th century maternity corset. Um, when we rounded the corner and, and my students saw it and I first pointed it out to them, one of them actually gasped. <laughs> um, so how and why was corsetry practiced during pregnancy? Corsetry is continually this sort of point of fascination, I think, for just fashion history in general, you know, or just the general public because it's often held up as this torture device. You know, we're always like, why did women do this to themselves? Did men put them in them? Did women put them in them? What were they thinking? You know, all this stuff. And the truth is, is that it's incredibly complex. There's so many layers to why women wore them. And the maternity corset and displayed next to it is also a child's corset from the same time period. The truth behind those is that those are not corsets that are designed to make the wearer look thinner. They're not designed to give her that hourglass, like nipped in waist that we classically think of when we think of corsets. They are more related to prevailing notions in 19th century society. You know, one of them goes back to the point I made earlier, which is that it was about being appropriately dressed, you know, being modest, you know, having your body contained in some way that women were not putting their bodies on view. You know, today we think of tight clothing as being very sexy, you know, but in the 19th century, if you were wearing something tight, you know, this is before stretch fabric, it meant that you were wearing something tailored and often that you had a corset on underneath you. It meant that you had all of these layers of appropriate proper clothing on your body. So there's a linkage between basically the correct body and morality. Exactly. And, you know, women's bodies have always been policed. You know, we all we talk about that in so many different ways, and this is no different. The way the the woman's body is contained and not revealed. But another reason for this maternity corset and also the child's corset is that there is a prevailing notion in the 19th century that women's bodies at any age, any stage, were inherently weak and needed support. So, you know, the child's corset doesn't have any lacing. It doesn't have any boning. It's just a ribbed cotton. It was designed to make the girl stand up straight, have better posture, because her body was too weak to stand up on its own. And the same goes for the maternity corset. It's got five rows of laces that are kind of all around the body. And it, too, is about supporting the belly, about supporting the body because the woman is too weak to carry her belly on her own. And it's not too different in sort of the mechanics in certain ways from belly bands and things that we still see on the market today. And to be honest, though we're so shocked, and I think to a certain degree rightly so, about the maternity corset, on the market today, there's still maternity spanks. Right. There are vestiges of this thinking and these kind of garments that are still out there today. Right. Absolutely. So a lot of these garments that you've mentioned so far, like corsets, and there's there's a lot of these other really extreme forms of other undergarments mm-hmm. in the exhibition as mm-hmm. well. There's a beautiful cage of crinoline mm-hmm. in the exhibition. All of these are obviously external to the body mm-hmm. itself, mm-hmm. but 
This begins to change a little bit with the birth of modern dress in the 20th century. And there starts to be a shift in thinking, um, a shift away from the reliance on these external contraptions mm. and devices. And we start to see in, in a more of an, an internalized notion about how we need to have self-mastery over our own bodies mm. rather than relying on these devices to create these artificial shapes. Mm-hmm. So when and why did this occur and how was this idea kind of put into practice over the next few decades? Absolutely. I mean, the big tipping point is in the second half of the 1960s. Like the 1960s is the decade where designers and high fashion really starts first rejecting all of these undergarments. And then the 70s is when it just gets rejected everywhere. But there is a big misconception in this period because this is the moment when everybody talks about freeing the body. Mm-hmm. And and that's true to a certain extent. You know, in the show, we've got Rudy Gernreich's No Bra Bra, right. which is designed to do exactly like what the name suggests to make it look like a woman's not wearing a bra. It's lightweight nylon. There's none of this understructure. And it's paired with a dress that Gernreich designed right about the same time that's one of these classic A-line mini dresses of the 60s that's cut away from the body. And all down the side is a, a, vine, a piece of clear vinyl. You know, all down the side of the dress is, is see-through. So you can't wear any undergarments right. under it at all. You know, not only is it short and exposing the legs and sleeveless and loose and freeing, but you can't wear any undergarments at all. You know, so it's such a reversal of what we've seen before. But at the same time, the bodies that these A-line mini dresses were almost entirely shown on were incredibly thin, incredibly young girls. You know, Twiggy is the archetype here. We actually have a dress from a line that Twiggy did that she lent her name to in the exhibition. And so this all this understructure gets replaced with diet and culture. Yes. And then later fitness culture and fitness lifestyle and this idea of the gym body. So it's not that we become all of a sudden super comfortable with women exposing their bodies in all of their fleshy realness. It's that women are free to no longer wear rubber and boning and all these things underneath their clothes, but they need to make sure that their body still doesn't jiggle or be fleshy or actually show itself to be at all soft and voluptuous in any way. And so instead, the advice... All the guides start telling you to be, you know, not that they weren't telling you to be this way anyway, but to be moderate in what you're eating, Mm -hmm. to be, you know, to an extreme. And then as we get into the later 70s and into the 80s, you know, first there's dancing and aerobics, and then there's other types of workouts. You know, before the 80s, you know, late 70s and into the 80s, this idea of working out, like having a gym membership, that this was something you did regularly, that everybody was supposed to do that you either worked out and were healthy or you didn't and you were completely unhealthy and unattractive and terrible. You know, this didn't 
that binary didn't exist right. until then. There is, I, I did a little bit of research on actually a piece that we have in the collection. Um, and it's these really beautiful pushbar plates of women in the 1920s doing mm-hmm. exercises. Yeah. Um, so I did a little bit of research. And at that time, so we're talking around 1925, I found mm-hmm. an article um, in the New York Times saying, oh, a gym for women opened. There's just one. Yeah. Just, no, just one. Absolutely. In all of New York City. Absolutely. So, you know, it wasn't that there wasn't fitness before this period. It just wasn't something that— It wasn't that, fitness culture. Right. It wasn't the same kind of fitness culture. It would be like anecdotal every once in a while. There would be like, oh, maybe do some leg lifts or some stretching or what have you, you know, every now and again to be rejuvenated. But there wasn't this, this same obsession with— going to the gym and being hard and toned. And you're absolutely right. You know, uh, our director at the museum, Dr. Valerie Steele, she, she's a corset expert, and she always talks about this internalizing of the corset when she speaks about this moment and how the gym really is the new corset. Yeah. And, you know, interestingly enough, too, we're talking about gym culture. Mm-hmm. Um <laughs> I don't know if you've heard about this, but somebody recently launched a makeup line as gym makeup. No. Because, <laughs> because so many people are taking selfies at the uh, gym these days. Mm. So, I mean, this is like taking gym culture to like yeah. the nth degree. Totally. And I mean, it, but it also goes to your point from the very beginning. You know, it's about technology. It's about how we communicate. You know, clothing, fashion is a form of communication. So it's obviously going to be impacted by how we communicate. Right. Absolutely. So these ideas that, that, that we should be responsible for the form of our own bodies, this has by and large really become the idea with Western European culture mm-hmm. has fed us yeah. for the last century. Right. Um, that, this is the kind of relationship that we're expected to have with our own bodies. Yeah, and I do think to the point you just made, it is worth noting that the show and this whole conversation, we are talking about a Western, Euro, American, Anglo centric way of thinking about the body. Obviously, throughout the globe, there are so many other ways of looking at the body and looking at the clothed body and, you know, through so many different cultures. I think the reason that we're so stuck in this one way of continually viewing the body in the West speaks to the just general lack of diversity at all levels of the fashion industry. You know, that we might see the influence of some of these other ways of thinking about the body if there were greater levels of diversity at the highest levels across all of these influencers and gatekeepers and institutions in fashion. And until we have that kind of diversity, you know, I I think it's going to be very hard and we're going to continue to have these same conversations. Right. Well, I think things are slowly beginning mm. to change, perhaps, mm-hmm. <laughs> thanks thanks to a group of very dedicated fashion activists, including yourself. <laughs> um, you said something at a lecture recently that kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. Um, and I think this is something that is really, really going to resonate with a lot of our listeners out there. You said that it's, and you kind of touched on this earlier, you said that it's not our bodies that are incorrect or wrong. It's that the fashion system is broken. Absolutely. I mean, that was, uh, I was really struck by that comment when it was presented to me at 
a workshop and showcase by this nonprofit organization called Open Style Lab. They work downtown in New York out of Parsons, and their whole goal is to think about design and clothing and technology and this idea of design intervention to come up with design solutions for people with diverse abilities who face really extreme challenges in just getting dressed and undressed every day and in just the way clothing functions in our lives. And at the showcase, you know, the one of the clients that works with these designers got up at the end of her group's presentation wearing the coat that they had designed for her. And she was, you know, really moved. She said how she had had just the most amazing time at the lab because before that she had always felt like clothes were right and her body was wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and that just really changed my whole way of kind of viewing this topic. I was there as part of my research and it was just so succinct and so perfect. You know, we all have felt that way. Obviously, this is like an extreme example where we can immediately understand the challenge this that she has faced in her life consuming clothing. But any of us have faced this, you know, going to a store or ordering something online in the size that we're supposed to have, taking it into the fitting room, trying it on, and it just doesn't work. You know, I... (laughs) Yes. You know, like, not to call out a brand, but, like, I went to... I I forget the boutique, but I went to try on, you know, a couple years ago, those Vetmall jeans that everybody was, like, gaga for. Mm -hmm. And I just, like, couldn't... Like, it didn't matter what size they were. Like, I could not get them over my, like, hips. It was just, like, the way that they were cut, it was just, like, it was never going to work with my body. Right. You know, and that's true for so many people with so many brands. And and I think that it just cuts to the core of the fact that the whole industry is based on this system of producing clothing that arguably has been around to some degree at its core since the late 19th century. This way of kind of scaling garments from one central, idealized, middle size, scaling up, scaling down, and then having one kind of fit model, one body type that you're working with. And I think that there's a flaw in that system. I think there's a lot of flaws in the whole fashion system, but I think we have to get to the core sometimes of the mechanics. Right. And I I truly think that in the 21st century, the fashion industry is still operating on an inherently 19th century way of viewing the female body. And until we really address that, even just in how we think about the body, standardized sizing has just set up a system of categorizing bodies, of seeming like it is a set system where our bodies are supposed to slot in. Right. And when we can't... And they don't. And and then we we get frustrated. Yeah, we get frustrated. We feel terrible about ourselves. We think that there's something wrong with us, but there's not something wrong with us. There's something wrong with the system. The, The system is broken. The system is not producing clothing for people. And I cannot believe, you know, I'm a historian. I'm not a, you know technician, engineer, designer, but I cannot believe, I refuse to believe that in the 21st century, when all these other industries out there are moving so far forward, paving the way with all of this innovation, that there's no way to pull the fashion industry at this most basic level out of the 19th century and bring it to the present. You know, I refuse to believe that. So, 
where do you think all of this leaves us today? Like, what is the current relationship of mainstream fashion to the bodies that it's meant to clothe? And what are some of these critical opportunities for improvement um, Mm -hmm. that you would like to see happen? Well, I think that there needs to be an important distinction between, like, mainstream fashion and high fashion. Arguably, mainstream fashion is making way more headway in this space than high fashion. Like, there's so many ways to look at these kind of retailers, but Zara, Forever 21, you know, they're the ones who are already offering stuff in such a greater range of sizes than you're ever going to find at those high fashion labels. Right. And... So I think that in in the mainstream sense, there are more conversations going on. The mainstream retailers, the kind of like high street retailers, they are thinking about expanding sizes and, you know, the Targets and the Walmarts and all of these. It's high fashion that's so stuck in the past and also so resistant in so many ways. You know, again, not to call people out, but, you know, Vogue pats itself on the back for putting Ashley Graham on the cover when she's flanked by, like, nine straight-sized models, and she's the only one with her arm down on her thigh. And, you know, Ashley Graham, you know, said that she, you know, had decided to pose that way. Nobody told her to pose that way, but someone still decided that that picture that needed to go that was the on shot. the cover. And, and in the exhibition, we end on a more—I po- try to end on a more positive note, kind of highlighting designers who I think are— setting an example who are in their work or challenging the status quo because I do think it's an important it's important to kind of highlight people who are already doing something rather than calling out all the people who are doing it wrong because the whole system has been set up right. to do it's it wrong. institutionalized. Right. <laughs> right. And I mean, and there's so many aspects we have to think about this. Like, you know, fashion is stuck in this idea that different size bodies or different colored bodies or different aged bodies or different bodies of different gender identities or different abilities are going to degrade their brand. Right. You know, there's so many ways of thinking about this that are so antiquated. And I really think that in this current moment, when, again, so many industries out there are having the tough conversations about where we are in terms of kind of social and political and where we want to be. Well, social responsibility, Exactly. Even. You know, like where we want to be, how we want the world to look. Other industries are having some of these really tough conversations. And to be honest, going to a Chromat show, you know, she's our poster girl for the exhibition. And by the way, there'll be Chromat images on our Instagram. Dressed (laughs) dressed underscore podcast. Awesome. Well, I mean, Chromat has hands down some of the most diverse fashion shows in, in all of the fashion capitals, you know, just globally. And I have to say, going to those shows, it's quite moving. It's such a cross section of diversity. Mm -hmm. And the women are proud and stomping down that runway. And it's just an amazing sight to see and really moving. And then you go and you look at any of the other runway shows that are happening, and you see this parade of teenage, tiny, 
white girls. And it just feels so out of touch. Right. And I really think that if fashion doesn't kind of wake up and see where so much of the rest of the population, you know, the rest of the kind of cultural conversation is and kind of get with that, it really risks, I think, being left behind. Yes. Agreed. <laughs> um, so... I just want to say thank you so much for being with us here today. Do you, did you have anything else that you wanted to add before we before we sign off? No, I think that's it. I mean, there's I I could go on about this topic for so long, just <laughs> rambling about it. But I I do I guess just want to say that I I hope that the the final platform of the show it's almost all kind of contemporary new acquisitions that we brought into the collection for this show specifically. You know, Becca McCarran, Tran of Cromack, Christian Siriano, Prabhu Gurung, Lucy Jones, Grace June. They're all doing really incredible work. And my goal with that, again, was to end on a positive note because there are people who are changing the conversation, who are using their brands. I mean, it tends to be young and up-and-coming brands that are doing this, but they are, with their collections, with their labels, challenging kind of mm -hmm. where we are. And so there is some change, yeah, you know. Yeah, designers can be activists, too. Exactly, you know, and there, there's still, though, a lot of work to do. And we need to just make sure that the current conversation keeps building and keeps growing and gaining momentum because that's the only thing that's going to lead us to one day affect permanent change. And that's what we want. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be able to fit in those jeans when I walk into the yeah, store. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. We all do. <laughs> Thank you so much, Emma. Cassidy and I want to extend our most sincere thanks and appreciation for this amazing exhibition. I think it's a really terrific narrative of how throughout human history, human bodies have been seen as either an asset or alternately and unfairly oftentimes used as a means of marginalization. The Body, Fashion, and Physique is on view now through May 5th, 2018 at the Museum at FIT at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York City. And a mission there is always free. So for those of you who may not be able to make it out, please check out our Instagram feed at dressed underscore podcast, where we post images to support each week's episode. And for this week's episode, we'll include images of specific garments discussed, as well as installation views of the exhibition. You can follow Dressed on Twitter, also at dressed underscore podcast, and on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Yeah, we don't know why, but Facebook did not like our underscore for some reason. I know. If you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dressed at howstuffworks.com. Until next week, we hope you take time to love and appreciate your body when getting dressed.